Did you ever wonder what it would look like if Paul the Apostle won the Super Bowl? We'll address this topic and hopefully some more important ones in today's episode of God Meets the Grind. We're taking a big chunk today, but it's going to be awesome. So let's jump in. Philippians chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. It looks like Paul meant to end the letter here, doesn't it? Since he says, finally. But beware when a preacher says, finally. It doesn't mean what you think it means. There's a story about this grandmother who attended a very high church service, and she took her young grandson along with her for the first time. And she explained to him the meaning of each of the elements of the service, from the minister's vestments to communion, the music, the prayers, every little detail. And the boy was fascinated. Then at one point, the minister glanced at his watch, and the boy caught it. And he turned to his grandmother. What does that mean, he asked. His grandmother sniffed. It don't mean nothing. Paul continues in verse 2 with this. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So certain Jewish Christians crept into the churches in the first century and tried to convince the Gentile converts to get circumcised and basically become Jewish. They're known as Judaizers. But Paul here calls them dogs. Why does he do that? The Jews referred to the Gentiles as dogs. I think Paul's taking their own degrading term for the Gentiles and turning it back on them. And to make the point quite explicitly, Paul says they mutilate the flesh. I'll leave that for you to unpack. Verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In the Old Testament, Jewish boys would be circumcised on the eighth day. But many Jews looked at this the way many Christians today look at their baptism, as their ticket to heaven, so to speak. I got circumcised, I'm okay with God. And the Christian version, I got baptized, so I'm okay with God. Paul hints at a truth here that he develops elsewhere, that true believers are circumcised in the heart, so that circumcision becomes a metaphor for devotion to the Lord. And he contrasts this with putting confidence in our flesh. Let's read verses 4 to 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Here Paul recites his pedigree as a Jew, and it's quite impressive. He goes over all these so-called reasons to have confidence in the flesh to make the point that they mean nothing. Verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul has gained Christ. And knowing Christ is more valuable than anything he lost. Now to the heart of the matter. In verses 8 and 9, Paul says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Okay, Paul digs up a golden nugget here, a huge, weighty, gleaming nugget, the gift of righteousness. Don't miss that word, gift. Here's the gift. We get Jesus' righteous standing when we believe. This is the very heart and soul of Christianity. This is one of the handful of doctrines that make up the core of our faith. Follow me here. Jesus died for our sins. We know that. But Jesus also lived a perfect life on our behalf. So when we trust in him, God bestows, credits, imputes to our account Jesus' righteousness. Theologians call this imputation, a very ornate, upstanding word that just means God credits us with Jesus' righteousness. This is what happens when we're joined with Christ. God imputed our sins to Jesus on the cross. Jesus suffered for them. And then God imputed Christ's righteousness to us who believe. Did you know if you combine Jeff Bezos' bank account and my bank account, together we have a net worth of nearly $200 billion? That's billion with a B. Let's all let our jaws hit the floor here for a second. We actually possess Christ's righteousness. I think this would be a good time in our podcast to roll down our windows and holler at the top of our lungs how great imputation is. Shout it out loud. Now, I realize we also have Northern Europeans and other kinds of Minnesotans in the listening audience. Might I suggest that you take a moment and quietly nudge the person next to you and say, yeah, huh? That's good. Okay, let's just take a couple of breaths. What Paul has just said will act as the foundation for what he says now in verse 10. Here's verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The unimaginable power it took to raise the dead body of Jesus back to life is what Paul wants to experience. In your experience of resurrections, I think you'll concur that it takes some kind of power we haven't seen. Death is death. It's really stubborn that way. Unless God intervenes, which he did. Then Paul says the very weird thing, that I may share in his sufferings. Most of us in the West have never really been persecuted for being a follower of Jesus, nor do we desire it. I would just encourage you and me, embrace it when it comes. It's going to feel like everything has gone wrong, but it hasn't. It's part of the deal. And it's a good thing to start telling ourselves that now. Then Paul adds, becoming like him in his death. What on earth does that mean? Okay, we know this much. Jesus died so we could have life. So far, so good. Now the strange part. This life turns out to be a life of dying. And by this dying, manifesting, displaying the life of Christ. Confused? Then you were definitely listening. This is one of the several precious paradoxes of Christianity. All right, track with me here. We think of life and death as sort of opposites, right? You're either one or the other. I was talking with this really old guy one time, and I asked him how he was doing, and he said, I'm still on the right side of the dirt. There's so much in that statement. But in Christianity, to oversimplify it for a second, life and death walk hand in hand. We're alive in Christ, 
we die to our desires. We live for Jesus, and to some degree, we enter into Jesus' sufferings. Now, in verse 11, Paul says something quite unsettling, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Wait, what? I thought resurrecting from the dead was guaranteed to all who believe in Jesus. Why is Paul talking about striving to obtain it? I think this is just Paul's way of highlighting the preciousness of it. His future resurrection is certainly not in question, but it's his greatest treasure to be with Jesus for all eternity. So he pursues it like a treasure. There's a literary teeter-totter with the last verse. We're becoming like him in his death so we can be resurrected. Living dead, dying life. Confused? I guess I am too. But hey, it wouldn't be a paradox if it was easy, huh? Okay, how about this? Imagine you were told that you're guaranteed to win the Super Bowl. Oh, by the way, you're playing in the Super Bowl in this illustration. So, congrats. The win is certain. God told you that you're going to win. But you still have to go out there and play the game. And there's going to be times when you're getting beat up out there. You got some injuries and you're behind by 20 points. Do you want to win? Is it precious to you to win the Super Bowl? Absolutely. 100%. I think that's Paul's mindset. No, not to win the Super Bowl. Although that would be pretty cool to see the Apostle Paul out there with his robe and flip-flops just firing these missiles, connecting with Travis Kelsey on crossing routes. Whoa, that's the first time I've spoken positively about the Kansas City Chiefs in a message. I hope that doesn't become a habit. But the blessed hope is to rise to new life one day, free from all the pain and disappointment and suffering in this one. You want that too, right? To one day see Jesus' face is more precious than all the awards and accolades and loves and luxuries this life can lavish on you. That's why Paul considered it worth striving for. Because of the surpassing worth, think of those words, surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Don't miss this. Here's Paul's secret. He didn't lose all that stuff so he could sacrifice for Christ. He did it so he could gain Christ. Paul's going to carry this theme into the next few verses, which we'll get to next time on God Meets the Grind. 